0: It's great to be with you this morning. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces and a lot of new faces too, which is exciting um, to see how the Lord is is moving here at Grace. And um, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Psalm 110? Psalm 110, which is almost right in the very middle of the Bible. So if you flip to the middle, you'll be close, probably to the Book of Psalms, and find Psalm 110. This is one of my favorite psalms, and when you preach periodically like I do, you just get to preach all your favorite passages of the Bible, so uh, so that's where we are. Psalm 110. This is a psalm of David. We'll begin reading verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. I want to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think of a great and glorious king? In some ways, when we think of someone who is a tremendous leader, someone who is a gifted leader and administrator and king... We get something close to what we see here in Psalm 110, don't we? Someone who's ruling in the midst of his enemies. Someone who's, who's leaving a, a, a trail of corpses in his wake. Someone who's in power and everyone fears him because of his tremendous power and might and majesty. That's what we think of. Now let me ask you another question. What comes to your mind, having that in your mind, what you think of when, when you think of a great king. Now what comes to your mind when you think of Jesus what comes to mind when you think of Jesus how do those two pictures a great and glorious reigning leader and king now what comes to mind when you think of Jesus how similar are those two pictures how different are those two pictures does Jesus fit our modern understanding our current understanding of a great and glorious king how is he different I write about Jesus for a living Every day I go to an office in Nashville and I write Bible studies about Jesus, trying to point people to who Jesus is, trying to help people better understand the gospel of Jesus Christ so that their lives might be shaped by the work and ministry of Jesus. So it's easy for me to be comfortable with who I think Jesus is. And I think for many of you, if you've been involved in church for a while, it's easy to think you're pretty comfortable with who Jesus is. You know who he is. You 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 don't you probably didn't come this morning expecting to be surprised by Jesus this morning. You probably didn't come thinking this guest speaker is probably not going to tell me anything I don't already know about Jesus. Now some of you may not be maybe less familiar, you will be completely surprised by who Jesus is and and what we learned about Jesus this morning but my guess is that you probably came going like yeah well here's some good stuff about Jesus but I'm not going to be surprised Um, if you're anything like me you probably feel that way Um, you see when we approach God's word though it is a word that is powerful. The Bible describes itself as being sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible describes itself as being a mirror that's able to peer into our souls and show us who we are and what we're like. The Bible claims to be inspired by the God of the universe. That he, he gave the, the men the words that they wrote down that we see in this book. That this is no, just no mere book, but it is God's word to us that is Im- intended to tell us who God is. And who we are in relation to God. It is the most important book that we can possibly study. And so, and at the center, by the way, at the center of this book is the word made flesh. We believe that the word of God actually came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, that God chose to dwell among us and live among us and minister to us so that we might know him in a personal way. And so my prayer for you and my prayer for myself this morning is that though we come probably with some sense that we will not be surprised by Jesus, that somehow God, by the power of his word, will surprise us. Not that I have anything new to tell you. I'm going to tell you some things about Jesus, many of which you probably already know. But I pray our hearts will be impressed, will be amazed, will be in awe of the person and work of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I don't have anything new to say this morning. But I have a powerful word uh, from you to, uh, to deliver uh, Not because I carefully crafted this sermon But because your word is powerful And Father we want to submit our hearts and our lives to it And say what this word says about Jesus is true And that that matters in how we live our lives Father we want to submit ourselves to you as our great king But Father we also recognize from Psalm 110 That this great king that's spoken of in Psalm 110 Sacrifices himself for his people and I pray that that reality would Uh, would move us to worship Jesus this morning, but Father, that it would also uh, move us to sacrifice ourselves in service of your kingdom and sacrifice ourselves for the good of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me give you a little bit of background about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 may be the most important song. In the Bible, the, the book of Psalms is, in many ways, the songbook of the people of Israel. And this is arguably the most important psalm, uh, the most important song that was sung by the nation of Israel. And the reason it's so important is because it's quoted again and again and again and again and again by the New Testament writers. The men who wrote the New Testament are constantly looking back to Psalm 110 to talk about God's fulfillment of his plan for the universe. This song was sung again and again by the people of Israel because of its incredible and precious promises. Peter quotes this psalm in his uh, at Pentecost, in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2, he quotes this psalm to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. In other words, that Jesus is both the Lord of the world and he's also the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one who'd come to pay for the sins uh, of of God's people. Um, This psalm is quoted by the writer of Hebrews, multiple times to demonstrate that Jesus is our great high priest. In In other words, that Jesus is the one who pays the penalty for our sin, that he offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins um, this psalm is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul is defending the, the the truth of the resurrection of Jesus that Jesus really did rise from the dead he quotes Psalm 115 to demonstrate uh, the, the truthfulness of the resurrection um, and, and, and to demonstrate how Christ has conquered his enemies through his resurrection in Ephesians Colossians 1 Peter Psalm 110 is quoted to reference Jesus and his great victory over his enemies. But what I want to look in on this psalm is how Jesus has accomplished victory over his enemies. How has Jesus conquered his foes? And I think we're going to be surprised by that. Psalm 110 is not only the most important song, perhaps the most important song in the Bible because it's so often quoted, but also because it's a song of victory. It looks to the day when the Messiah would look out and all of his enemies would be laying dead at his feet. That all of his enemies would be at his footstool. It pictures a Messiah that it's got a, a, a corpses laying in his wake. It's a graphic psalm. Um, and and it looks. And the reason it was popular is because that's, I think, a popular uh, vision of the Messiah that people had in the Old Testament. Um, that people had in, 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 in the days of Jesus even. This was what people thought of when they thought of the Messiah. They thought of Psalm 110, this, this king who's going to come in and, and take names and take care of business. I mean, he's going to take care of business and get his enemies out of the way and establish his eternal kingdom, his, an, an eternal priesthood. Israel's going to be in charge again. That's the idea that people thought of, I think, when they thought of this song. Um, and while there's some debate about some of the other, uh, what you call messianic psalms, psalms that look forward to the ministry of Jesus, or songs that look forward to the ministry of the Messiah. Um, There's some debate about different psalms like Psalm 108 or Psalm 132 or some of these other psalms that people say, ah, that might be about the Messiah, or it might not be, but everyone believed that Psalm 110 was about the Messiah, that this song looks forward to the ministry of the Messiah. And we see this very clearly in Matthew 22. Uh, In Matthew 22, um, it was Psalm 110 that Jesus quotes to stump the Pharisees, the religious leaders that were trying to say, uh, trying to question Jesus' ministry. So Jesus brings up the psalm and he says, um, and he brings up the psalm because the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, believed that this song was about Messiah. And so Jesus asks the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ? Um, in other words, whose son is the Messiah? The promised one of the Old Testament that's going to that's come and take away the sins of God's people. Whose son is he? And, and, and the Pharisees uh, don't want to answer the question. And Jesus says, but, the, but, they, they, um, but, but Jesus says, that why does David call him Lord in the spirit? Why does David call the Messiah Lord in the spirit if he's his son, if he's David's son? Everyone in, in Israel believed that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Right, That he would be a son of David and he would fulfill David's kingdom, the promises that God made to, uh, to, to establish David's kingdom forever. And so the Pharisees believe that, yes, this is the, the Messiah is David's son. And then Jesus says, well, then why does David call him Lord? Why does David call the Messiah Lord? And Jesus is saying something very important about his ministry there, too, and about who he is, isn't he? He's saying, I am Lord, I am King, I am the Messiah, I am the one that will reign forever, I am the Son of God, and everyone one day will call Jesus Lord. Everyone will bow the knee to Jesus and and testify to Him as Lord, whether in shame or in joy, everyone will bow the knee to this Messiah, to Jesus. The picture of the Messiah in in Psalm 110 is a little different from the one we're comfortable with, isn't it? Um, In Psalm 110, Jesus is found ruling in the midst of his enemies and awaiting the day when those same enemies would be made his footstool. In other words, that he would be able to put them in their place. It looks forward to a day when Jesus would execute judgment among the nations, shattering the authority of any king who would claim to have authority in his place. This is a song of victory. And we even see at the end of this song of Jesus filling, I think this is about Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah filling the nations with corpses. It's, a, it's, a, it's really, the, the, in Psalm 110, Jesus is closer to Rambo than he is to, um, you know, the, the, the felt board Jesus that you might see in Sunday school. Some of you grew up in Sunday school and we put pictures of Jesus up on the board. You remember this? He put pictures up of Jesus and Jesus is always hugging children and holding lambs in his arms. And like, um, he's this really like friendly, um, hippie looking guy, right? Uh, free love. That's kind of the picture of Jesus that comes to mind for a lot of us. But the picture of Jesus in Psalm 110 is, really is kind of closer to Rambo. He's taking care of business. This is a guy you don't mess with. He's in charge. And we don't think of Jesus that way because we're more comfortable with the hippie Jesus, the Jesus that loves everyone and brings no judgment. But Jesus is is much more complex than that. Um, And I think we see that in this psalm. Well, this is a vision of Jesus that we might find foreign. We should note that it wasn't foreign to the disciples. In fact, this is how the disciples wanted Jesus to be. They wanted Jesus to be like Rambo. They really did. They wanted Jesus to come and take care of Rome and get them out and establish the priesthood in Jerusalem again and establish the, the temple and, and, and make sure that, that there was no Roman influence anymore and establish uh, Israel as, you know, in charge again, as being a, a, a world power again. That's what they wanted. And we see this when, um, this is what Peter had in mind when he rebukes Jesus. Jesus begins teaching about how he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And what does Peter do? He says, no, no, you can't die. And what does Jesus then do? He rebukes Peter. Says, get behind me, Satan! For your mind is set on the things of man, on the things of the world, not on the things of. Of, of the Lord um, he, he calls Peter Satan for essentially for claiming that he cannot go and die but Peter had this vision of Jesus in mind that Jesus would take care of business that he would uh, rule in a in a, in a, um, in a very physical way um, this is the idea that uh, Peter had in mind too when he took up the sword when Jesus was arrested and betrayed and so when Jesus is arrested at the end of, of the gospels Peter takes up the sword cuts off the the ear of one of the Roman centurions that came to arrest Jesus. This is what Peter's thinking of. You, you can't be arrested. You can't suffer and die. You can't go to the cross. Why? Because you've got to take care of Rome first. You've got to take care of business. You've got to put corpses in your wake and shatter kings. You've got to take care of business. This isn't the kind of Messiah that you would be. But in each of these instances, Jesus rebukes his disciples not because he's not a great and conquering king, But Jesus rebukes his disciples, not because he would not judge the nations. Jesus rebuked Peter because he didn't understand the way in which Jesus would conquer. Jesus is a great and glorious and conquering king. But here is the good news of the gospel for us this morning. The good news of the gospel for us is that Jesus establishes his kingdom through suffering. Jesus conquers through suffering. You see, Jesus established his kingdom in a way that no other kingdom in the history of the universe has ever been established. Jesus established his kingdom and conquered his enemies, not through military might, not by flexing his muscles, not by... Uh, any way that we might think a king would establish his kingdom Jesus conquers through self-sacrifice Jesus conquers by being conquered himself by offering himself up to be conquered by his enemies Jesus slays his enemies by being slain himself We're going to see that in Psalm 110. The Messiah of Psalm 110 is a great and victorious king, but what Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees failed to see is that the Messiah would establish his kingdom through suffering. Jesus is not only our great high priest, uh, our king, but also our great high priest in the psalm. He's not just a glorious king, but he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, The the Jesus of Scripture is both priest and and king he's both the king who reigns forever and the priest who lives forever to make intercession for us and that's important for us because if Jesus is only a priest to you if he's only the one who offers himself in sacrifice of your sins but not your king you're worshipping a Jesus of your own imagination if we think of Jesus only as the one who, who gave himself up so that we might have eternal life but not to reign and rule and power forever. Jesus is, 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 is very comfortable to you. But he's not the Jesus who says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, but if Jesus is just a king and not your great high priest, then you have no place with him. Because we cannot possibly be in the presence of such a great and glorious king if we have sin in our hearts, if our hearts are corrupted by sin. So it's important to us that we understand Jesus as both of these roles, as great priest, uh, high priest, and, and great and glorious king. But Jesus establishes both of these roles as great priest and great king, Lord and Christ, through suffering. We're going to see that. But this idea that Jesus conquers through suffering, I want you to know, is not just the story of of Psalm 110, it's the story of the Bible. From start to finish, the the story of the Bible is a story of conquering through suffering. We see this at the very beginning. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your line. And then we get in between, um, and and then God confirms his covenant with Abraham in a very peculiar way. In Genesis chapter 15, it's one of my favorite stories of the Bible, uh, but Genesis 15, there's this weird story where God says, Okay, I'm going to confirm to you, Abraham, that you are my people, that your people are my people, that I'm going to bless you, that all these promises I made are going to come true. And so the way he confirms that covenant is he says, Abraham, take some animals and cut them in two, and set the parts of these animals on, on separate sides of a field, okay? And then, then this was normal, this sounds weird to us, to cut animals in two, and it's blood, and bleh, you know, it's weird. This idea, we don't, we don't sacrifice animals the way that people did in the Old Testament era. Um, but this, in this story, this, was, this would have been normal for people in that day. Now, when two people would make an agreement... About something, you know, we're going to agree. Matt and I are going to agree. I'm going to share some of my land uh, because I'm I'm a noble person, and Matt's just a peasant. Um, And uh, so I'm going to share some of my. I'm going to let I'm going to let Matt work on my land and make and, and share some of my crops with Matt. And so when we make this agreement, I might sacrifice some animals. In the Old Testament uh, Testament times, I'd sacrifice some animals, and I'd put the pieces of the animals, of the corpses, on either side of the field. And the lesser person in that agreement, the peasant, the, the, the less important person in this agreement, has to walk between those animals, the pieces of those animals. And the reason they would walk between the pieces of those animals is because... They were saying by walking between those pieces, they were saying, if I don't keep my end of the agreement, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, let me be like those animals. Let me be rent asunder. Let me be cut in two. Let me be destroyed if I don't keep my end of the, of the bargain. And so in this story, God tells Abraham to cut these animals in two. And in the story uh, in Genesis 15, when God confirms his covenant, this great covenant with Abraham, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. It's a weird story. And we look at that and we say, what is the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch? Well, both of those pictures, fire and smoke, are, are images of the presence of God in the Old Testament. In uh, Exodus, right, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt, he leads them uh, in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Smoke and fire are pictures in the Old Testament of the presence of of God. And so the smoking fire pot and flaming torch, most theologians believe, most people believe, this is the presence of the God of the universe. The God who made this covenant with Abraham, passing between the pieces. And by God himself passing between these pieces, he's saying, if I don't keep, or if you don't, he's essentially taking Abraham's place. That's what's going on here. He's taking Abraham's place. He's saying, Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the, of the covenant. Let me be rent asunder. Let me be torn in two. Let me be destroyed on your behalf if you don't keep my covenant. See, in that moment when, when the smoking fire upon and flaming torch passes between the pieces, God is saying, I will bear the consequences of breaking my own covenant. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus has done for us. He has fulfilled that covenant to Abraham by passing between the pieces, by offering himself as a one-time-for-all sacrifice for sin. In Psalm 110, what does this king do? He sits down at the right hand of the Father. That's an important image that's picked up again and again and again in the New Testament to signify that Jesus has accomplished God's plan of redemption Himself, He sits down after offering himself in Hebrews chapter 1. It says, after offering himself as a sacrifice for sins, Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, signifying that it's finished. God's plan of redemption has been fulfilled. God has brought his covenant. Um, he, he has bore the, the consequences of his own covenant. Now, here's an interesting thing about those early chapters of Genesis and the covenant of God between God and Abraham is that in between God giving the covenant to um, to Abraham and God confirming the covenant by passing between the pieces, we get this really weird story about a guy named, named Melchizedek. Chapter 14, Genesis 14, Abraham is just uh, finished being, just returned from war, and Abraham gives 10% of his spoil uh, in war to Melchizedek. Um, lots of people say that's that's the text that tells us why we should give 10% of our income to the Bible. Um, and actually, I think the Bible commands us to give more than that, I think, but that's another sermon for another time. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, in between the, this... God giving the covenant to Abraham and confirming the covenant with Abraham, we get this, this guy Melchizedek showing up and blessing Abraham. Now, Melchizedek is a king. He's the king of Salem, but he's also a priest. And Abraham offers... Um, and he Abraham goes and worships with Melchizedek and, and, and um, sacrifices uh, with Melchizedek in worship of the Lord. And so, in the beginning, the Bible begins with a priest and king um, and the promise of conquering through suffering. But then we also see... That the Bible ends with this promise of a king who would conquer through suffering. We saw that in our scripture reading this morning Revelation chapter 5 we saw that very clearly so the Bible begins with the promise of conquering through suffering then Israel sings about this idea of conquering through suffering in, in Psalm 110 again and again they sang this song of, of, of the Messiah conquering through suffering and then the Bible ends with this idea of conquering through suffering um, so Jesus sits down at the, right, at, the, at the right hand of the Father after, after making purification for sins and then uh, he establishes his eternal priesthood, a priesthood that would never be broken. And in Revelation 5 that we read earlier, we see God's people once again singing in celebration of God's victory over his enemies. In fact, you might turn there. Um, we're going to look at this psalm. I mean, uh, this, uh, this another song in Revelation 5 really, really briefly. Um, But this is another one of my favorite passages of the Bible because of the distinction that we see here in in Revelation 5 between uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that was slain. Um, In Revelation 5, again, once we see God's people singing in celebration, in celebration of God's victory over his enemies. But in Revelation 5, there's this scroll and um, nobody's found worthy. To read the scroll, right? And most people think the scroll probably has as, and, and I'd love to be able to sit down and read the scroll, wouldn't you? Because no one's found worthy to read it, and this is the, the contents of the scroll apparently have to do with how the end of the world is going to come about and how God's going to fulfill His purposes for the universe. I would love to know exactly how God's going to fulfill his purpose for the universe. And when I read uh, Revelation 5, I want to know what all these different moving parts in Revelation 5 are. Who are these elders and the living creatures? And what do these horns have to do with anything? I want to know what all those things are. But that's not the point of Revelation 5. We're going to see that very clearly uh, in Revelation 5. So um, in, in Revelation 5, um, John is, is weeping. He's mourning. Why? Why? Because no one is found worthy to open the scroll. The fulfillment of of the history of the world, of the ultimate, God's ultimate plans for the world, there's no one found worthy to fulfill it. Um, No one's found uh, worthy to open and read the scroll, scroll, so John begins to weep, and the 24 elders say, weep no more. Why? For the lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll in its seven seals. Verse six And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth, and he went and took the scroll, and from the right hand who is seated the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang anew song. And look at the contents of this song. God's people are still singing about God's victory, but look at what they sing now. They sing with more revelation than the saints had in Psalm 110. They sing with a bigger picture of what God has done and what God has accomplished. Look at what they sing. They sing a new song, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And whose who 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 what who has made promises to in, in the covenant with Abraham? Who did God make promises to? The whole world, every nation would be blessed through the descendants of Jesus. And it says in verse ten, "And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." So what happens in Psalm? I mean, in uh, Revelation five, when Jesus, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and also the lamb who is slain, when Jesus is found worthy to open the scroll, when the lamb that had been slain takes the scroll, the four living creatures and the elders and everyone responds by falling down before this lamb who is slain and worshipping him. They're worshipping him because he's worthy. And why is he worthy to open the scroll and take its seals? Why is he worthy to fulfill God's plan for the world, for the universe, for us? Why is Jesus found worthy to fulfill God's plan because he was slain and by his blood he ransomed a people from God, for God for, from every tribe and tongue and nation. So scripture begins with a priest and king whose ministry in the life of Abraham leads to God's promise uh, and, 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 and in some sense fulfills uh, or, or promises of the fulfillment of God's promise. And then it ends with the ministry of a priest and king who's been conquered for our sin, you see, God has chosen to conquer through suffering. Jesus' act of conquering through self-sacrifice changes everything for you and changes everything for me. It gives us a seat at the table with God. It it, it invites us into His family. We are no longer um, we, are, we are no longer just God's subjects, but we're His children. He's adopted us into His family through the sacrifice of His Son. So how should we respond? How should we respond to Jesus knowing that he conquers our enemies? He conquers his enemies through suffering. I think at least three things we could say. um, And there's a million things that we could say. But here's three I want to give you very quickly as we close. Jesus' act of conquering through self-sacrifice makes us able to worship freely. Psalm 110 verse 3, God's people offer themselves freely on the day of his power in holy garments. So we will offer ourselves freely, just like the angels and the four living creatures, uh, when they realize that Jesus is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain, how do they respond? Worthy are you. And they rejoice in his suffering. Isn't that weird? <laughs> Isn't that odd? That the, these angelic beings are worshiping and rejoicing the fact that, that the, the, the Messiah was killed. That he was destroyed, in a sense. They worship in light of suffering. But we do that every Sunday, don't we? Oh, the wonderful cross. Um, Amazing love. Um, We sing about how Jesus bled and died. Um, uh, 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 What is the one I'm trying to think of? It just left me. the, the, the blood of Jesus a song about a blood of Jesus somebody help me out nothing but the blood yeah that's the one I was trying to get to and I could, for some reason it just left me um, yeah we sing we rejoice and we, we find joy in the fact that Jesus bled isn't that weird we would never do that we would never rejoice at someone bleeding uh, and people would think you were crazy they lock you up for those sorts of things but we do it every Sunday don't we we rejoice in the fact that the lamb was slain because we know why he was slain He was slain for the purpose of conquering his enemies. He was slain for the purpose of conquering our enemies. He was slain for the purpose because we, and we rejoice because we are his enemies, aren't we? Apart from this suffering, we remain enemies of God, but by the suffering of the blood of Jesus, we're reconciled to him. And that makes us want to worship freely. It makes us want to tell our children about Jesus and center, help them center their lives on Jesus. It makes us want to come to church and, and covenant together in a body of Christ to say, uh, hold me accountable and I'll hold you accountable and we'll help each other pursue Jesus and make our lives centered around him. It makes us want to be a part of a church because Jesus died for us and he died for us not just for you and not just for me he died for us for the church that's really important isn't it and when we see that Jesus is the great king who suffers and dies for us and rises again for our, uh, for us to achieve victory as well we want to give ourselves freely to him this is the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector isn't it the Pharisee in the parable in the great parable of Jesus the, the Pharisee and the tax collector the Pharisee is looking at the tax collector and saying God I'm glad well, I'm not like that guy he, uh, he cheats people, he defrauds them, he smells funny, he's not a good guy, uh, I'm so glad I'm not like him. And Jesus looks at the tax collector and he says, uh, I mean, and, um, the, the tax collector looks out, won't even look at the, at the Pharisee, won't even look at anyone else, won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's offering himself freely in worship to God. He knows his need is for Jesus. He knows how deeply he needs Christ and he's worshiping freely. We will center our lives in the gospel only when we see Christ as priest and king as our great treasure. Another thing I think that we see from Jesus conquering through sacrifice is that we are to participate in his kingdom in the same way. We participate in the kingdom of God by offering ourselves in sacrifice to the Lord. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. We even see this in our, in our relation to our enemies. Because Christ has conquered his enemies through suffering, we're to conquer our enemies through suffering as well. Uh, Romans 12.20, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing... You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, when we are pressured by the world around us, when the world around us is pressuring us to to compromise on our commitment to Jesus, uh, when those around us would love to see us turn our backs on Christ, what are we to do in response to that? Feed them. Give them something to drink because that is exactly what Jesus has done for us. While we were shouting crucify, Jesus offered himself for us. And he did it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross on our behalf with joy. And we are called to joyfully love our enemies as a means of pointing them to Christ. Take up our crosses and follow him. Consider others more important than ourselves. you see, because our greatest enemies are not other people, but our own sin. Um, and the cosmic forces in the heavenly places, it's a whole other sermon as well. But, uh, but our, our greatest enemies are not other people, but, uh, but, but our own sin. And we fight uh, our enemies by sacrificing ourselves for them. I think that's an important point that we can draw out of this passage. last thing I'd like to say about Jesus conquering through suffering is that it gives us confidence. Jesus is a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And In Hebrews 7, we read that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. In other words, Jesus is able to completely and fully save his children. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, when we sin, brothers and sisters, if you've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've said, Jesus, you are my only hope, um, if you like the, t- the the tax collector, beat your breast and say, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me through Jesus." If that's you, then Jesus always lives to intercede for you. So when you mess up this week, and you are going to, you are going to say something to your spouse that you regret. You are going to um, say something to a coworker that you regret. You're going to lose your temper. You're going to uh, fall short of the glory of God. You're not going to live perfectly for the gospel this week. If you are, if that's you, if you think, I am, I want to talk to you afterwards because I want to know your secret. But you're not. You're going to fail. Uh, It's not going to work. Okay? You're going to mess up in trying to live for Christ this week. Here's what you need to remember. Here's how you find confidence to overcome sin. Christ lives forever to intercede for you. You are his child, and your status as child of God has nothing to do with your performance, with how well you've lived, with how good you've been, but it has everything to do with Jesus living to intercede for you. Every time you sin, he offers a prayer that is greater um, for you than, uh, than the, the condemnation that would rightly be on you for your sin. Jesus lives to intercede for us, and we're no longer defined by sin but we're defined by sacrifice. Christians are no longer defined by their own sin. If you've trusted Jesus, you're not defined by your past mistakes or the sins that you're going to make this week or the sins that you made today. You're not defined by those things. You're defined by sacrifice. You're not defined by sin. You're defined by sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Christ. That changes everything. Because of Jesus, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. We can worship freely and we can sacrifice of ourselves for our neighbors. Let's pray. Father I thank you so much for our time together this morning and I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the reality that Jesus uh, reigns he rules through suffering and that you would help us to join in that same endeavor and reign and rule and and through our own suffering that we would seek um, to give of ourselves for the good of others because we love Christ because we worship him freely Father we pray these things in Jesus name Amen